Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode is sponsored by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. Today we're talking about a number of aviation accidents that have one thing in common. There was no pilot in the vehicle. First are the tales of three planes that managed to land after their pilots bailed out. And then there is the mystery of the L-8 blimp. Finally, we talk about Taffy Holden, a ground crewman testing the English Electric Lightning, a jet plane, when it accidentally took off. And now, let me introduce the History Guy. On July 4th, 1986, Soviet Air Force Colonel Nikolai Skridin took off from Begitz Air Force Base in northern Poland in a Mikoyan Gorovich MiG-23, NATO codenamed Flogger B, third-generation jet fighter on a routine training mission. As he took off, the plane's afterburner, used to increase speed, failed. The plane started losing power and altitude, and at just 500 feet, with no altitude to spare, Colonel Skridden realized that the plane was going to crash and used the plane's ejection system. There's always a risk using an aircraft's ejection system, and more so at low altitude, but the Colonel ejected and landed safely, fully expecting that his plane would crash soon after. But it didn't. To the surprise of both pilot and ground crew, the plane recovered, gained altitude, and kept flying the autopilot keeping it on the last direction set by the pilot, straight towards NATO airspace. The pilotless craft, which did not have any ordnance on board but did have ammunition for its cannons, then crossed over the German Democratic Republic, then part of the Eastern Bloc and allied with the Soviets, and on into the Federal Republic of Germany, NATO airspace, which offered a distinct risk of misunderstanding during the Cold War. As NATO tracked the Soviet warplane, having received no notification from the Soviets, two F-15C Eagle tactical fighter aircraft of the U.S. 32nd Tactical Fighter Squadron of United States Air Forces Europe were scrambled from their base in the Netherlands. Pilots J.D. Martin and Bill Murphy rushed to confront the unknown threat. Despite communication difficulties with the ground, the pilots were able to find the errant MiG, approaching it from behind over West Germany. There they could see that the plane not only carried no ordnance, But, they reported to the startled NATO authorities, it had no crew. The NATO authorities decided that the plane wasn't an immediate risk, but then that left the question what to do with it. If you shoot it down, it caused a risk to civilians below. But the plane's trajectory made it look like it would go over Dutch airspace and then over the North Sea, where it could be safely shot down. And so the two F-15s were ordered to escort the plane until they could shoot it down over the ocean. However, the plane started to bank left, apparently running out of fuel over Dutch airspace. The trajectory suggested it would crash in France, near Lilla, just over the border with Belgium. Again, the question was what to do. Would there be more risk shooting the plane down or letting it crash on its own? As they followed the plane, the two F-15 pilots, with the help of ground radar, determined that the plane would likely crash in an empty field in Belgium, and that letting it crash was the safest alternative. Tragically, when the plane finally crashed, it hit a Belgian farmhouse, where an 18-year-old man was trapped under the rubble and died. The pilotless plane had traveled more than 560 miles. The Belgian government lodged an official protest, complaining that the Soviets had offered no warning about the rogue craft. The plane had remained airborne for more than an hour after it showed on NATO radar with no contact coming from the Soviets, something the Belgian government referred to as 
Notable slowness. When he found out that his errant plane had killed a person, Colonel Skridden apologized to the family, and the Soviet Union paid Belgium $685,000 in compensation for damages. On February 2nd, 1970, United States Air Force Captain Gary Faust took off in a Convair F-106 Delta Dart Interceptor aircraft of the 71st Fighter Interceptor Squadron from Malmstrom Air Force Base near Great Falls, Montana. The plane was on a training mission simulating air combat. At 40,000 feet, the plane and another dropped into what is called a vertical scissor and, during a high-speed rudder roll, went into a flat spin. Captain Faust went through the sequence to recover from a spin but could not regain control and ejected at 8,000 feet. To his surprise, after ejecting, the plane went into a nose-down dive and recovered from the spin. The Air Force later theorized that the shift in center of gravity and force from the explosive ejection system had pushed the plane down and allowed it to recover. As he descended in his chute, one of the other pilots radioed to Faust, You better get back in! Faust landed safely and was rescued by local citizens using snowmobiles. As part of the recovery attempt, the plane had been trimmed for takeoff and set at idle throttle, and now the pilotless plane drifted casually down and landed softly in a wheat field near the small town of Big Sandy, Montana. When the local sheriff arrived, the plane was still idling, and the Air Force instructed him to just let it run out of fuel. The plane was little damaged, so it was recovered and put back into service. The press coined the name the Cornfield Bomber, despite the fact that the plane was not a bomber and did not land in a cornfield. Pilots who later flew the plane called it instead the Grey Ghost. The plane, tail number 787, was finally retired in 1986 and transferred to the Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, where it is on display today. One of the most mysterious examples of a pilotless plane was a B-17 bomber of the Second World War, the so-called Ghost Ship. On November 21, 1944, the crew of a British anti-aircraft battery in Belgium witnessed a B-17 bomber making an apparent emergency landing in a potato field near their position. The plane landed roughly enough that it bounced, causing one of the wings to strike the ground and throwing debris from a propeller as the engine was destroyed. But the plane remained upright, with the other engines idling. The gunners rushed to help the crew, only to find the plane mysteriously empty. A logbook mentioned heavy flak, but no damage was apparent. Personal items on board, including partially eaten chocolate, was testament that a crew had recently been on board, but their fate was unknown. Oddest of all, the crew parachutes were still neatly stacked inside. An article appeared in Stars and Stripes magazine the next day, coining the name The Ghost Ship. Stars and Stripes was able to complete the story in an article published December 8th. The crew had bailed out, and all were recovered safely. The plane had been on a bombing run to a refinery in Meersburg, Germany. The plane's number two engine had failed, and the bomber had fallen out from formation. The plane, a nearly new plane on only its third mission, then experienced problems with its bomb racks, and the bombs wouldn't drop. Slow and out of formation, the plane was an easy target, and enemy fire took out the number three engine, while hit inside the bomb bay caused a huge flash that made the bombs drop, but miraculously did not make them explode inside the plane. The propeller on number three was windmilling, causing vibration. The pilot, Harold DeBolt, realized that the plane was not going to make it back to its base in England on two engines, and so headed for Belgium, hoping to make it into Allied territory. The crew jettisoned loose equipment to lighten the plane, but as the other two engines sputtered and the plane started to lose altitude, DeBolt ordered the crew to bail out. While there were still enemy in the area where they landed, all the crew members were recovered by Belgian civilians and rescued by British infantry. The plane apparently continued to slowly lose altitude enough to land relatively intact in the field. 
The crew speculated that the gun crewmen were not able to distinguish the flak damage from landing damage, making it appear as if the plane was undamaged before landing. The parachutes that they found inside were spares. The mysterious story of the ghost ship was again related to the newspaper The Eagle Tribune of North Andover, Massachusetts in 2011 by the co-pilot of the plane, Osborne Stone, who eventually was credited with 40 missions during the Second World War and earned the Air Medal with clusters. He went on to fly again with the Air Force in Korea. Mr. Stone passed away in 2017 at the age of 95. Now for an even greater mystery of an aircraft that managed to land without a pilot. The enduring mystery of the L-8 blimp. At 6.03 in the morning on August 16, 1942, the U.S. Navy blimp L-8 took off from the Naval Station at Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay on a routine mission to look for Japanese submarines in the Pacific. The blimp had two 325-pound depth charges aboard in case it ran into a Japanese submarine. The weather was generally fair, with light winds and a ceiling of 800 to 1,000 feet. The day was slightly overcast, but visibility was good at 3 to 5 miles. The airship was crewed by Navy Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. Both crew were Navy veterans with exemplary service records. 28-year-old Cody, who was the senior aviator of Airship Patrol Squadron 32 and a 1938 graduate of the United States Naval Academy. His commanding officer described him as one of the most capable pilots and one of the most able officers under his command. Adams, 38 years old and having just been commissioned as an officer, had 20 years experience in lighter-than-air aircraft with 2,281 hours of flight time in airships. He had served aboard the airships Los Angeles, Akron, and Macon, and had been decorated by the German government for rescuing Hindenburg passengers after that airship caught fire and crashed in 1937. The airship L-8, or Love-8, had been built by the Goodyear Company to be used for advertising the Goodyear name. At the outset of war, Goodyear's five airships were requisitioned by the Navy, where they were used for coastal submarine patrols, a role for which they were well suited due to their ability to stay aloft for long periods of time. Love 8, 150 foot long and held aloft by 123,000 cubic feet of helium, had been commissioned into the Navy in March of 1942. The L-8 had seen good service with the Navy. During its 1,092 trips aloft, it had required no more than normal maintenance. The blimp had been inspected just four days prior to the August 16th patrol and was deemed to be in fine working condition. In fact, Love 8 had already earned a place in history during the war. In April 1942, Love 8 with Cody at the controls, had delivered some 300 pounds of aircraft parts to the aircraft carrier USS Hornet. The parts were needed for the B-25 Mitchell bombers aboard the Hornet, on the way to bomb Tokyo in the famous Doolittle Raid. The flight that morning was scheduled to take about four hours, flying west for approximately 30 miles to the Farallon Islands, north to Point Reyes, and south to Montara Beach before returning to Treasure Island. The airship was expected to return between 10 and 10.30 in the morning. An hour and a half into the patrol, at 7.38 a.m., Cody radioed L-8's position as four miles east of the Farallons. Four minutes later, he sent a second message. Am investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by. An oil slick could be the sign of an enemy submarine. Love 8 was observed by the Liberty ship Albert Gallatin and a fishing boat named Daisy Gray as it circled the area for more than an hour, at one point descending to less than 30 feet above the waves. The Daisy Gray, which was close enough to see the crew through binoculars, pulled up their fishing nets, concerned that the blimp had seen a submarine and was about to drop depth charges. But the blimp dropped no depth charges, and apparently satisfied with their search, the Daisy Gray saw them head away around 9 a.m. To the fishing boat, the action seemed normal, and the airship was apparently under control. 
But the Navy was concerned, as the crew had not made contact since radioing that they had, were inspecting the oil slick. Two Vought OS-2U float planes were dispatched to search for the Love 8. The blimp was spotted by a Pan American clipper over the Golden Gate Bridge at 10.50, and then by one of the OS-2U float planes at 11 o'clock. Both times the airship appeared to be under control and headed for base. The lack of contact was assumed to be a radio problem. However, when an off-duty sailor driving down the coastal highway saw the Love 8, he noticed that it was bent in the middle. He snapped a photograph. At 11.15, a bather at Ocean Beach saw the blimp drifting towards shore, some eight miles off course. It was only 50 feet above the water, sagging noticeably in the middle, and the motors were silent. The craft touched down on the beach and dragged until the gondola hit the side of a hill, causing one of the two depth charges to release and roll down the hill. With the loss of weight, the craft drifted up again and continued drifting inland. The blimp started attracting a crowd as it drifted inland. One witness with binoculars claimed to be able to see figures inside the gondola. Another claimed to see a parachute. Both the Daly City Police and Fire Department started following the clearly disabled airship. By the time the airship finally went down, crashing into a home on the 400 block of Bellevue Avenue, hundreds of people were there to witness it. The ship sat down softly, but the tail swung into some telephone wires and the envelope punctured, deflating the vessel. A volunteer fireman who lived next to the crash site rushed to help the crew. But there was no one on board. The gondola's door hung open. Firemen slashed the envelope, expecting the crew to be trapped inside, but there were nowhere to be found. Search crews were sent to search the land between where the airship came ashore and where it landed. The missing depth charge was recovered, but there was no sign of Cody or Adams. The airship was found to have been in perfect working order. Its engines were operational, but idle. Its radio was fully functional, leaving the question of why the crew had made no additional contacts. The life raft inside was still there, and were the two parachutes. A crew member's hat was on the controls. A briefcase with secret codes was still locked in place. The Navy could identify no operational reason that the crew would have abandoned the airship. Two of the Mae West life jackets were missing. It was required that the crew wear such vests when patrolling over the ocean, so it was not a surprise that they were missing along with the crew, but it raised the possibility that the men were still alive at sea. The Coast Guard and Navy searched for three days. Despite good visibility and calm seas, no sign of the two officers was ever found. The San Francisco Call Bulletin ran a story on August 18th, noting that the land search for the crew had been concluded. The Navy declared that they were positive that the men had not been aboard during any part of the blimps drifting over land. The story concluded with a quotation from a Navy spokesman. Nothing the Navy knows now has given a satisfactory explanation of what happened. Nor has any explanation ever been found. Theories have been put forward from a murder-suicide over possible love triangle to microwave exposure from experimental radar to alien abduction. None have any hard evidence to support them. The most likely explanation is that one crew member fell, possibly having gone outside the craft to repair an engine, and that the second crewman fell trying to rescue him. But that does not explain why there was no call on the radio, nor why no trace of the men could ever be found. The L-8 was repaired and returned to service, served throughout the war. After the war was given back to Goodyear, where it operated as one of the famous Goodyear blimps, flying around over sporting events until it was finally retired in 1982. Ernest Cody and Charles Adams were declared dead by the Navy a year after they went missing. But the circumstances of their death remains a mystery to this day. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. 
Well, here we are on the History Guy podcast, and for the first time, we're actually in the same room. We're in the same room. I don't know if you know most times, actually, I'm in Illinois, and Josh is in Wyoming, and we are talking over a Zoom call, but now we're actually sitting in a room, and where are we, Josh? Well, we're in Houston, Texas, and we are having the wonderful privilege of getting to visit the USS Texas. And we're going to go take a look and we'll do some filming. And you guys will probably get to see the uh, the results of our journey here on the channel. But for now, we just get an opportunity to be together and do the podcast in one room. Yeah, you know, Josh is my oldest son. And we actually don't get to be together in the same room very often. So come on, Texas. I think you'll enjoy some of the content that we'll be making, mostly on the YouTube channel first before it gets to the podcast. Uh, but we've done a lot of stuff with USS Texas. Great people. The USS Texas, of course, uh, is in need of restoration. And so it's if you are interested in preserving pieces of our history, that's a place to consider some of your donation. So we're very happy to be here in Houston. We're very happy that tomorrow we get to go walk around on a battleship. It's not even open to the public. It's just open to, to us. So we're how much more fun can you have than being on a battleship? And we're just happy to be in the same room together. Absolutely. I'm really excited to see that battleship close up. We took just a just a glance at it today, but tomorrow, tomorrow's when the real fun begins. So the stories that we're talking about today, the first couple that we've talked about are these these pilotless planes that flew themselves and landed with more or less success. Uh, these I think these stories are so interesting. It's kind of like a combination ghost story and history story with some of them, especially uh, that B-17. <laughs> um, it also just brings those questions, what happened on these things? And we get to answer the questions with these ones, except for except for the blimp. And how did these planes that they were certain were going to hit the ground? Because every one of them, you don't ditch it from a plane unless you absolutely have to. And yet somehow all of these planes kept going. Kept going, yeah. The, the Cornfield Bombers is a hysterical story because he was, I mean, it was in a, it was in a, in a, 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 a nose up a stall. He could not get out of the stall. He did all the things to it. He followed all, this, all the cycles he's supposed to. And it was the power from the ejection uh, that actually pushed it back in. And so he's coming down on his on his parachute watching his plane fly away. Someone says over the radio, <laughs> you, you need to get back in. Uh, you know, it's it's just strange how avionics can occur. And these these are fun stories. And there's probably many more stories like these than the ones I picked up. But they're uh, they're interesting just because they're 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 funny. They're weird. You fly enough planes, and eventually stuff will happen. And these are just weird things that happen. Because you, you have to think that ejecting from the plane and that plane then and that saving the plane, apparently, has got to be a one in a million chance. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, apparently it was trimmed properly and that's, that's the only thing. And if that was the only thing that was going to fix it, what, what was he going to do? <laughs> but, but also that the plane manages to land mostly intact in a field and that you have know, the, the uh, farmers there and says, what do I do? And they said, well, let it run out of gas. Don't go touch it. And, and so it just goes out of gas and they were actually to put that plane in the air that's an interesting story but the the other one the soviet plane crashed killed a person so i mean it's a tragedy but that was also very similar he thought the plane was completely out of control and then it was the ejection that brought it back into, and then it flew on through nato airspace that one shocks me because you kind of think well and i think with all of these you think it, like you have to actually fly the plane like the plane doesn't just fly itself and there's a pilot in there for a reason and yet that plane went 500 miles huh? and just <laughs> with no one in it and so it's, apparently, I mean, neither one of us are pilots but no. apparently if you get if you get it pointed in the right direction 
Uh, it can fly <laughs> as long as it has gas. <laughs> it won't land itself is usually the problem. You know, as long as it has gas. But it, but I mean, they could, and that's the story with the B seventeen. Is that is that they it literally landed itself, landed on its wheels, better landing than a lot of damaged B seventeens did. Uh, and another one where they you know they were sure that this plane was so damaged that they couldn't remain in the plane, and they yeah. jump out, and it manages to you know get back into its groove. Apparently, and it, it you know just slowly lose altitude as it lost fuel and land. In a field next to a, a British anti-aircraft gun, so they're like the you know this plane landed and there's nobody in it. I I remember reading about that one actually before you had uh, produced the episode, and because the 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 story where the, you know they see this plane plane land and they look into it and the plane seems okay, and they and they're trying to figure out you know you're trying to like piece together this mystery of why this plane is has hit the ground and that's how it was originally published actually when it was originally originally published in stars and stripes it was mystery they didn't know it because they, they they're working from the report from this anti-aircraft gun crew and they said it was it looked to be undamaged it still had parachutes in it it landed safely they don't know how and when you actually and, and you know they were able to track down the story actually you know they do actually have serial numbers on the plane and they know what happened to it and uh, in fact they have extra parachutes and and uh, the damage the battle damage that was the reason they jumped out was being mistaken for damage that it took when it was landing in the field and so it's it's interesting but it, originally this was presented to the military as oh this is a mystery and then by the time it was published they'd already figured out that the mystery was solved uh, and, but still such an extraordinary story yeah. you know i mean when they jumped out of the plane they thought that plane was going down and I, I i don't know if it's you know if they could see it flying on i don't it wasn't <laughs> the same sort of story like oh wow i didn't think they would fly away but i mean I, i'm sure that the crew had to be surprised to find out that the plane you know had landed, landed intact you know <laughs> yeah. in I, holland if they knew it was going to land, you think they would have st- they would have stayed on? Yeah, it, but... you think if, if if you would think the pilot could have probably done a better job of landing it in the field than the plane would just by itself, <laughs> but and that would have been safer than jumping out of the plane. And and they, I mean, these were people who, I mean, flew planes. They they knew when the plane was was Absolutely, in bad yeah. shape. They, you don't you make that call to jump out of the plane. Yeah, only yeah. well, but, and you put your crew at risk if you jump out, but you put your crew at yeah. risk if you don't. And and, I, and that maybe speaks to I mean, you're in these situations that pilots have to make decisions and if you if you make the wrong decision I mean, all yeah. these people that are depending upon you these you know bomber crews they die so that, that this, those decisions were being made all the time uh, during the war on both sides during the war and so it's just an interesting story about how this one seemed to work out that the plane was actually yeah. able to you know make it someplace where it could land well i guess you know the, they get enough lift and as long as those the wings are in okay shape and it doesn't get buffeted around too much and, and an engine, <laughs> can, can, and the engine can apparently stall and it, it somehow get itself restarted i guess yeah. it had to do with the fuel line or and then, i mean crazy it's, it's yeah who, who would have guessed not not the stuff you expect but I, I mean, I think what's interesting is that of all the all the stories we tell here, the the most the the one that remains most mysterious is the blimp. Yeah, it's an absolute mystery. No uh, one you knows. Know, go, go ahead and ask me what I think happened to the blimp. What do you think happened? I don't have any idea. I know, <laughs> and none of the stories make sense. I mean, honestly, they were abducted by aliens. Makes as much sense as that they jumped out of the blimp in order to. Uh, that's the other ones that they jumped out of the blimp in order to uh, 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 defect to the Japanese in a submarine. Why would the Japanese look for two blimp dudes? <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> yeah, make any a... sense at all. Or the, there's murder suicide theory. So the, the, the most likely theory is that some accident happened. One of them fell. The other went out to try to help him. He fell too. But you know that both dudes fell out of the blimp is is 
that's the most plausible story, and which it's is not like, a plausible story without without any because because like you said, there's no radio contact. There's no nobody exactly. said nobody it, said or did anything. There's no, no apparent damage to the blimp. The only damage to the blimp comes because apparently it got above its altitude. That's why it lost some pressure in it. Uh, uh, the the codes were still in it. Uh, there, no one called on the radio. The radio is perfectly functional. It's it, it is truly a mystery. I have no idea what happened. Well, and it's incredible that they because they they determined that like while people were seeing the blimp and it appeared to be doing things. That apparently, they, I mean, they determined that they didn't see it. The, the pilots must not have been in there. They weren't in there, yeah. The crew this, wasn't this, even there. This, yeah, it's just blown around. Yeah, they actually had experienced Air Force pilots fly past the blimp, or Navy pilots fly to the blimp and see it and say, oh, they're just headed back to base. And apparently it was already empty by that point. And it, so it is, it is such a strange story. And there's there are at least many thousands of people who went missing in the Second World War, combat people went missing. We never know what happened to them. Uh, and, but this is just, who would have guessed that the two guys that were doing the, the blimp patrol out of San Francisco would just mysteriously disappear and the blimp comes back. You know, the if, blimp comes if, back. If the whole blimp disappeared, it would be more believable yeah. than the blimp coming back without the crew. I, which, and then, I, you would think that the the blimp patrol from <laughs> that that would be like one of the safer. That's, jobs. It sounds like one of the safer jobs in the military. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Then, there's there's guys that are you know in combat zones. These are the guys that go fly over the island and come back. And if they see a submarine, they throw depth charges at it. And and uh, uh, yeah, they and they end up you know not coming back. And you know they crazy. you know they died like any other soldier in that war. They risk like any other soldier in that war. And it's so tragic to the families that we never knew the story. Of what happened? No idea. And it's I mean, gosh, you wish you can find solution. You find an explanation, but this seems like one. I I don't know. It's, it's one of those stories where you see it, you know it'll pop up in a you know on the on the web or something like that. Can't be real. And it's. it's the story is absolutely real. I mean, this thing they floated through, it landed in a in a, a residential area. You know, they they were immediately running in there to try to figure out what happened to the crew. There's no crew in there. It's just it's an absolutely strange and story. And they it's searched and they couldn't find him. And that's they searched I mean, really hard. They did an investigation. They couldn't find anything wrong with them. Nothing to explain it. The truth is, it's easy to get lost at sea. And if they if it is if and whenever they fell out, you I have mean, to think when the second guy fell out, he's like, no one's ever going to know what happened to us. <laughs> right <laughs> before how, as he, how as does he, that happen again <laughs> as he failed to to get on the radio or something like yeah, that right yeah. that's i i imagine something happened quickly you know and he was quickly trying to respond to uh yeah to his crew thought, and, thought that or thought that it was something they could handle and it went it went very badly very quickly um yeah, yeah. i it's it's hard to know but i gosh, well, and, I, and I can't imagine story. you know falling out of them saying you know my, my wife's never going to know what happened to me and here we are. I mean, and what, they, decades they never, later, they never find bodies. You know, but, I mean, that's the ocean's big. You know, yeah. and we may never, we may never find anything. Uh, I can't imagine that anything new is going to come up. I, yeah, I, I, I find it very unlikely that they're ever going to find any new bit of evidence in that. And yeah. so it's, I think, it will remain forever a mystery. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and we would like to thank Magellan for making it possible to continue these podcasts as we've done for over six months now. And as we often do, talk about what we're watching on Magellan TV lately. What's been the documentary of choice? I, I'm watching all sorts of stuff on Magellan at any given time. It's funny, I was looking through, and I, there's so many of them I've started. Uh, it's just, there's just so much to watch there. But one of the new series that I think is really interesting that I'm just starting to get into is called The Rooftops of the Great Cities. Uh, and I was attracted to it because I thought the photography looked really interesting, you know, flying over cities. But actually, it's not just—it's not just about what it looks like from the air. It's how roofs are used in different cities. And I, I had no idea that roofs of New York look different than roofs of Paris or Chicago. You could actually tell from the top how they use the roof 
and that's part wow. of the culture of the city. And it's it's just a really fun, interesting. It's it to me, it's a lot like the history guy. It's really quirky because they come up with all these little bits of things that you might not think, and they're all tied together because they're occurring on the roofs of buildings in cities and how much you learn about a city from the the top looking down. It's really quite incredible. Yeah, I think that I haven't watched that one, but it sounds interesting enough that I'll. I'll at least add it to my list. The problem is the list is always so long. It's so long, yeah. Five episodes in the series. and uh, Thousands of documentaries. Uh, these are brought together by people who make documentaries. So I, I tell you, they... It's, it's it's owned by the documentary filmmakers. That makes Magellan such an extraordinary service. And I'm just, always shocked by just the how consistent the quality is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's people who really care about their work. And it's yeah. absolutely... I mean, what you pay for a month from Magellan TV, you get so much more than uh, than yeah. what you're paying for. It's just an incredible value. And I do... I, I legitimately love my subscription to Magellan TV. Yeah, and then it's great. You know, you can use it just like any other uh, streaming service. You can do it on everything. Mm-hmm. It's got a great layout. It's got a great way of searching and showing you what episodes, what kind of new documentaries they've got going on. They organize them wonderfully. Uh, one of the ones that I was watching recently, which was totally interesting, was the the Great Wall of Japan, is what it was called. And that interested me because, well, I didn't know Japan had a Great Wall. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, after 2011, with the tsunami, the whole Fukushima thing, they decided, and a lot of the, they even had like votes on the in these coastal communities to see should we build. Uh, a seawall, essentially, to try to prevent these tragedies. And there's only so much you can do against a tsunami. But the idea is that this wall that they have built, which is six 600 kilometers or something like that, and it's 15 feet tall uh, at its highest in some section, it is supposed to buy a few minutes at least, which could be a real big deal. They were they were estimating that many more people could have survived if they had had even another couple of minutes of warning. Now they're starting to talk about, well, it's, it's not especially pleasant looking. <laughs> There's some cultural concerns. We have a special offer for listeners and watchers of The History Guy. You go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, and there will always be an offer up there for you guys. If you have not given Magellan TV a try, we highly recommend it. Our final story is about Taffy Holden, the accidental lightning pilot. Sometimes the best part of history is just a a ripping yarn. One of those stories where truth is stranger than fiction. Like that day in 1966 when a Royal Air Force ground crewman accidentally took off in one of the world's fastest aircraft. If for no other reason than it's just a darned exciting story, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On July 22, 1966, Royal Air Force Wing Commander Walter Taffy Holden was in the cockpit of a Lightning F-1 fighter interceptor on runway 36 at RAF Lynham. Introduced in 1959, the English Electric Lightning was a very fast aircraft that used a unique staggered configuration of two Rolls-Royce Avon turbojet engines within the fuselage. The F-1 was the first production model of the Lightning, and the Lightning remains, to this day, the fastest UK-designed and built fighter aircraft in history, with later models capable of reaching Mach 2. At the time, the United Kingdom's nuclear-armed strategic bomber force was called V-Force, referring to the three RAF bomber types of the era, the Vickers Valiant, the Avro Vulcan, and the Handley Page Victor. The RAF assumed that, in the event of an attack by Soviet strategic bombers, the V-Force airfields would be a prime target, and the English Electric Lightning was designed to defend those airfields long enough for V-Force to take off and get clear. It was anticipated that the Soviet Union would soon deploy a supersonic bomber, 
which they did. The Tupolev Tu-22, NATO reporting named Blinder, introduced in 1962. Given the Blinder's top speed of Mach 1.4 and the limited role envisioned for the Lightning defending airfields, emphasis for the plane's design was put on rate of climb, acceleration, and speed at the expense of range. The plane achieved this through a number of design features, the most unique being the vertically stacked and longitudinally staggered engines. The design allowed the thrust of two engines while producing only the drag of one and a half engines, a 25% reduction in drag over a traditional side-by-side engine design. In addition, the design allowed a low frontal area and efficient single-engine type handling, as having both engines within the fuselage means that there was no asymmetrical thrust. The combination of the engine design and the radical 60-degree notched delta wing allowed not just great speed, but an exceptional climb rate. The Lightning was famous for its ability to rapidly rotate from takeoff to climb almost vertically from the runway. And if you needed extra thrust, it had a reheat. Sometimes called an afterburner, a reheat injects additional fuel into the jet pipe downstream of the turbine. The resulting heat significantly increases thrust, at the cost of very high fuel consumption and decreased fuel efficiency. Reheat could be used for short, sharp takeoffs, a process that is described as being like a bullet fired from a gun. Given its design emphasis, the Lightning could be tricky to handle and was described by its pilots as like being saddled to a skyrocket. The particular aircraft being used that day, number XM-135, was in for repairs, having an electronics issue, with the RAF 33rd Maintenance Unit. The 33MU, based at RAF Lynham since 1940, was a civilian manned aircraft storage unit commanded by Wing Commander Holden, which stored and maintained three types of aircraft. The English Electric Canberra Medium Bomber, the Gloucester Meteor Jet Fighter Interceptor, and the Lightning. The planes would be dispatched to RAF units as they were ready and needed. Having dispatched all of their Canberras and Meteors, the unit was due to be disbanded as soon as all the remaining Lightnings were dispatched. However, XM-135, which had been the very first full-production Mark I off the assembly line and had served at the Central Flight School at Coltishaw, was having a particular electronics problem. This being the last aircraft before the unit was closed, Wing Commander Holden was under some pressure to get the plane fixed and dispatched. To make matters more complex, the unit had a qualified test pilot assigned to it, but that pilot was not qualified on the Lightning. Thus, to test XM-135, the unit had to wait until a qualified Lightning test pilot was available. The plane had a recurring electrical problem. During the first few moments of takeoff, the inverter that supplied power to the instruments would cut out, forcing a backup to kick in. That is not ideal under any circumstances, but particularly troublesome on the Lightning, where being shot like a bullet from a gun didn't give the pilot a lot of reaction time. The electricians had been unable to tamp down the problem. The test pilot, who was available, tried the plane a couple of times, but the problem persisted. Without a solution, they couldn't keep the pilot on temporary duty. The electricians decided to devise some tests which might isolate the fault and indicate roughly where and which component was at fault. They needed to test the plane on the runway, having the pilot make short runs while throwing various switches to see if they could replicate the problem and identify what was causing it. However, they didn't have a test pilot. Still under pressure to keep the clearance timetable, Holden found out that there would not be a qualified test pilot to do the tests for another week. But they did have an option, because Wing Commander Holden was a qualified pilot. Holden had enlisted in the RAF in 1943 and had elected to pursue a career in aircraft engineering. But the RAF had allowed him to train and earn his wings, under the theory that an engineer who was a pilot would be better able to understand the pilot's point of view when dealing with maintenance issues. 
he'd learned to fly on the de Havilland Tiger Moth. The de Havilland Tiger Moth was a single-engine biplane first introduced in 1931. It had a maximum speed of 109 miles per hour, somewhat slower than the maximum 1,300 miles per hour of the English Electric Lightning. Holden had also flown the de Havilland Canada DHC-1 Chipmunk, which, while still a single-engine propeller-driven plane, was at least a monoplane as opposed to a biplane. Holden had never piloted a jet aircraft. But he did not need to fly the Lightning. He just needed to taxi it on a disused runway while flipping switches. Rather than wait for the test pilot, they decided to have Taffy Holden operate the plane, which was only supposed to taxi in 30 to 40 yard bursts. They used runway 36, which was closed. The plane did not need to fly, so the canopy was removed. A Land Rover nearby would keep in contact with the tower and keep them appraised of each test. All Taffy had to do was taxi the plane a few dozen yards while flipping switches, and then make notes. The electricians would then decipher the notes to identify the location of the fault. Having never been in the cockpit of a Lightning and never flown a jet fighter, Holden did not even know how to start the engine, so one of his engineers gave him a short briefing on the operation of the engine and the throttles. Strapped in, Holden made his notes on the switches before the test, signaled to the Land Rover to get clearance for their 30-40 to 40 yard jaunt, throttled the plane up, and let off the brake. He described the initial punch as remarkable, as you might expect, but managed to throttle back and apply the brake in the 30 yards that was expected. As he later said of the first test, so far, so good. Now Holden moved some switches and took notes and planned for the second attempt. The Land Rover contacted the tower for clearance and he throttled up again. But this time, it did not go so well. As he throttled up, the plane shook against the brakes, but this time he throttled a little bit too far, and the shaking caused the throttle to push past the gate locks for reheat. When taking off with the reheat, the throttle had something called a gate lock, which was designed to hold the engine in reheat. So, in essence, all of a sudden, Taffy Holden was the bullet being fired from the gun. To throttle back from reheat, the pilot has to push back keys that are located behind the throttle. But Holden had never used these keys, and only even knew of them because the engineer had briefly mentioned them in the five-minute briefing. And Holden did not have time to search, as there were more immediate problems just in front of him. Having been told that he was only going to use another 40 yards of runway, the tower had cleared a fuel bowser and trailer to cross the runway to fuel awaiting C-130. Now zipping down the runway, Holden's first problem was not colliding with the Bowser. He just missed it, but after that, runway 36 ran across the main duty runway, and a de Havilland Comet of the RAF Transport Command was taking off down that runway. The Comet narrowly passed ahead of him, marking a second near-death experience in mere seconds, and he was still on the runway. But another problem was coming up quickly. The runway was running out. Still without time to find the keys that would allow him to throttle down, and with not enough room anyway, Holden did the only thing he could. He pulled back on the stick. As a stroke of good luck, the previous pilot had trimmed the aircraft for takeoff, and Taffy Holden, who had never been in a lightning cockpit until a few minutes before, was now airborne, and as they say, saddled to a skyrocket. He had almost died on the ground three times, yet was somehow still alive. And now he just had to get back on the ground. His immediate concern was to try to keep the base in view and look out for the comet that had just recently taken off. But once airborne, he was able to search for and find the keys that allowed him to throttle back. However, he was still in a pickle. Holden had no radio, no helmet, and no canopy. He thought about ejecting, but he couldn't. The safety pins that were used to make the plane safe for servicing were still in. 
His only choice was to land the plane. He described his first attempt to land as ridiculous, and he had to pull up and try again. The second attempt also failed, and he had to pull out again. He tried landing going the other direction and got the plane down on the third attempt. Now the problem was stopping. He looked around for and found the handle for the breaking parachute, but it did not slow him as much as he wanted. What he did not realize is that unlike the tiger moth and the chipmunk, the lightning had a nose wheel. The planes on which he had trained all had tail wheels. He had landed like he had been trained and in doing so had crushed the block containing the braking chute cables. The braking chute had dropped off as soon as it was deployed. He kept applying the handbrake and watching the end of the runway get closer and closer, but managed to stop with about 100 yards to spare. The ground crewman, who had only before ever piloted single-engine trainers, had landed the Lightning with minimum damage. At first, Holden was afraid that the incident might cost him his career, or at very least his pilot wings. But while everyone agreed that he should have waited for a qualified Lightning test pilot, they also agreed that he hadn't actually broken any rules. Taffy Holden continued with the Royal Air Force until retirement. Eventually, engineers did figure out the fault that was going on with the plane. It seems that one of the circuits originally had had a ground test button installed, and while later on in the design the button was removed, the wires were still there, and those were causing the short. And that shows the complexity of the plane that Taffy Holden and his crew had to keep flying. He said that while he always understood the technical aspects of his flight, he had never really sat and dealt with the emotional stresses that come from such a terrifying 12 minutes. He said the entire experience gave him a much better understanding of people who might need the same kind of help after similar unfortunate occurrences. And that might be the best lesson from the entire tale. Taffy Holden passed away in 2016. And the airplane, Lightning F1-XM-135, is today on display at the Imperial War Museum at RAF Duxford. In my opinion, a great museum, well worth a visit. The thing that strikes me the most about this, and I think the thing that strikes most people about this, is that I try to think of what I would do if I accidentally started a jet plane while I was inside of it, and uh, I am not at all confident that I would have handled it the way the Taffy did. I would have died screaming. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's probably exact, running straight like, into the... Yeah, the... <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would hope that I didn't kill someone else, but I don't know. I would have hit something, and I would have died screaming. It, it's just so... I mean, it's such a crazy, improbable story. And it's it's easy to say in, in retrospect, oh, you guys made such mistakes, but you can see the pressure that he was under and, and why they thought that they could fix this without going anywhere. And then, yeah, comical almost how, you know, how the error occurs. Uh, and it, I mean, just such a bizarre story. But I mean, he is he's an amazing person. I mean, who could keep their head in that? He's, he's never flown in. He's flown in jet planes before. He's never tried out and never soloed anything that didn't have a propeller on it. And he's on one of the fastest jet fighters ever built. And he has to figure out what's going on, and he gets it in the air, and then he has to figure out how to land it. And he keeps his head throughout, and that is just amazing to me. I mean, that guy's my hero. I, I don't imagine what he could do if you can keep your head in that. Responding to it is, because honestly, as fast as it must have been going, even in, immediately after it started, that he had the presence of mind to, I mean, essentially dodge, <laughs> dodge things on the runway and still manage to then pull it off. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, because I... It's one of those things where, man, one false move could have could have yeah. gotten him killed. Well, and if, if it hadn't been the coincidence that the previous pilot had it trimmed for takeoff, then he probably wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this is not the sort of plane that he was trained on. 
And it's funny that they had him in there because he was a pilot, even though he clearly <laughs> couldn't pilot this plane. Yeah. And they thought, you know, that was technically going to serve. And he ends up having to pilot the plane. And he manages to keep his head about it, not hit the other plane that's taken off, not hit the fuel bowser that's going across the field, keep track of the field so he knows how to land, and then manage to, to safely land the plane. It's just an absolutely extraordinary story. And it extraordinary. Is, the, the story is, is as exciting as, it, as, as, the, whole, as the whole plane thing. It is, yeah. This is really, it is, it is totally edge of your seat interesting and I, I just can't imagine what it's like to be flying in this plane and he, he didn't have a canopy over his he, he, he you couldn't use the ejection seat because it wasn't even set up for ejection he's not wearing a helmet he has no radio he can't tell him what's going on down there and he's got to figure out how to land a plane that is so much more plane than he was ever trained on and he did and he and, he, and they let him keep his job uh, because i think they had to re- they had to respect that i think they probably also respected the pressure that was under but i mean who yeah. would have guessed this could have happened Oh yeah, the the fact that well, and they apparently they couldn't keep it secret. There was a, a con- civilian contractors, right? So they everybody knew that something wrong had had happened. But the fact that I mean, the truth of this was set up to be a tragedy, as I, these, these, yeah. this accident happened, and I the fact and that it, he was alive. And would that even be a story? I mean, I, I doubt it would make the history guy. If what happened is they had him in there testing the plane, and you know the you know the engines went like the way they did, and he crashed at the end of the runway. But I, I mean, what makes it an incredible story is that he kept his head and then he landed that plane. And it's, it's, I always say, I, I love history. One of the things I love about history is, is truth is stranger and more interesting than fiction. And this is one of those stories that's, in some, in some ways, it's funny. It's, it's really very exciting. In some ways, it's just, uh, you're, you're amazed at, at, at yeah. his, his presence of mind. But in the end, you're just like, could you believe this actually happened? Because it, it did. Crazy, yeah. and the the fact that he uh, he was only in the air for twelve minutes, yeah. and the uh, you hear the whole story, and you're just going from thing to thing as he's as he's trying to respond to all of it. And you're like, I can't believe this happened. Twelve minutes. Yeah, That's, twelve minutes. That yeah. is all the time he had, and he managed to do all of that in it. And it, it caused such stress. It caused such post traumatic stress that he's, he's, he was stressed by it for his the rest of his life, really. Uh, and uh, I don't blame you him. Just imagine, I don't blame him either. Yeah, but I imagine you know what how twelve minutes can change your life, and that's yeah. it, that's an interesting part of the story as well. It was damaged a little bit in the landing, but it flew for I mean yeah. hours and hours, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like they, thousands they, yeah, they, of they, hours they afterward. Repair, I think they figured out what the flaw that they were looking for, which which was really interesting, was because it was the first one built. Yeah, it had just an extra lead in there that weren't in any of the others, and that was what was causing causing the short. Causing short and, yeah. and, the, and that plane is been restored, and it's in the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. So I've been there, and I've got to see that plane, that exact plane, which one. is amazing. I did want to ask you do you do you happen to know what led Duxford to acquire that specific plane? I mean, were I, they just yeah, I, I, I'm sure a, I bet you they tell in the but uh, but I, I, if they were looking to acquire. Uh, a, a lightning. I, I can see why they want to require it because this is this was oh, well, well, this is the first yeah. first air from it. So I can see why they want to do that. But I would imagine that's coincidence because it doesn't sound like they knew that it was Taffy Holden's plane until later. Uh, and yeah, so that's what, the, what's that, that's what I was going to ask was like, did they did they do it because this was Taffy Holden's I, I, plane? I, 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 yeah, just... actually, uh, uh, I could probably look that up. I, I think the, the Imperial War Museum knows. But I, if I understand it correctly, I don't think that they knew that it was the plane that this had occurred in until until after they had acquired the plane. Wow. I can say Duxford is an absolutely fantastic museum. And if you are uh, if you're visiting the UK and you only have so much time, I mean, I love all the pieces of the Imperial War Museum. It's one of my favorite places. of fantastic museums. Uh, Duxford has uh, got an airplane collection. Uh, that rivals the Museum of the United States Air Force, I think, which wow. is another amazing museum there in Dayton, uh, and some stuff that's really unique and odd stuff. And actually, it also has a it has a land warfare. So the thing about Duxford is that you can see planes and tanks 
uh, of course, a lot more British planes than American planes. The, the, the Museum of the United States Air Force is all American planes. But, I mean, it's got an extraordinary aviation collection. It gives the ability to tour a World War II RAF base. Uh, wow. Plus, you can go see tanks. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. That's for Totally worth a visit if you're ever out there. It's I I, and if I there, have ask not been. Him, ask them how they came. Why the English Electric Lightning? Why they got Taffy Holden's? If they knew that was what it was, go ahead and ask yeah. someone there. I bet you a docent at the museum. Somebody probably right knows. I've been there. <laughs> I have not, but I hope to at some point. Um, and I think that I mean ultimately, the plane was probably worth. So I mean, you know, displaying yeah. even without Taffy Holden's well, I mean, story. I think they, but they, they, that's the sort of museum that would want to have an English Electric Lightning. Yeah. If you're going to get one, why not get the first one? The first one that came up. And Which just so happens to also be the one that and has also happens to be the one where they couldn't figure out the fault in the plane, and so uh, the, uh, the this this great he was he was called a wing commander, but that's a, that's actually a rank. It doesn't mean you hmm. know, he never commanded. You know, he he got his pilot's license because he thought it would be helpful to him as a mechanic. But he was a lifelong ground crewman. He was a leader of, of, of a ground crew. He was a higher ranking officer, and he was in the plane because he was, he had a you know a pilot's certification. But this was not a pilot. This is certainly not someone who was in any way prepared to fly an English electric flight. And he and he did. He the, did. The damage he did to the plane was because all the planes he'd had before with propellers landed with a wheel on the tail, and the high performance jet fighters landed with a wing on the nose. And so he he crushed the box that hold the parachute that slowed it down. <laughs> Because he landed like he had a tail, uh, a wheel instead of a nose wheel. Which, to to be fair, as as many things as he seemed to figure out or get right, that one's pretty minor. Yeah, you know, that he remembered how to <laughs> land a plane even is amazing. And uh, how who, long? Who'd have known that you could take something as like? I mean, it's an extraordinary plane. It was that it was meant to just instantly get to where the, the the incoming bombers were, and so it is truly being strapped to a rocket. And who'd who'd have known that someone who essentially you know knew how to land small propeller-driven aircraft that you could use that same training and just went and successfully land this plane. And he, he knew his craft well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.